Hello and welcome everyone to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter and it is my pleasure to bring you items from Time Magazine. I need to remind you you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I'm going to start with some small items from the November 6th issue of Time Magazine titled Time's Best Inventions of 2023. The first item, accessibility, playing with Braille. Once available only through schools and other educational institutions, Lego Braille bricks, which teach visually impaired children necessary tactile skills, are finally coming to consumers' homes. The set, currently available in English and French with more languages all the way, takes the classic 2x4 building brick and modifies its knobs to correspond with the Braille alphabet, numbers, and symbols. The pieces are compatible with all LEGO products. We develop these for everyone so even sighted children and family members can show their interest in learning Braille, says Rasmus Logstrup Jensen, Lego's creative lead on partnerships and innovation. All right, the next item is a self-driving first. It's from the world of transportation, Mercedes-Benz Drive Pilot. Current cars Self-driving modes still require hands near the wheel and eyes on the road. But with an advanced new multi-sensory system called Drive Pilot, Mercedes-Benz's 2024 S-Class and EQS sedans are the first cars certified for Level 3 self-driving in the United States, in California and Nevada. It means that under certain conditions, mainly highway traffic jams with low speeds and a well-mapped road, you can completely give over control to the vehicle. The next uh, invention is accurate insulin. This is from the world of medical care. Beta bionics, islet, bionic pancreas. Nearly 7.5 million American adults take insulin. But getting the dosage right can be tough, says Ed Damiano, co-founder of Beto Bionics. Inspired by his diabetic son, Damiano spent 20 years creating the Eyelet, a credit card size, AI-powered smart device that links to a tube plugged into a patient's body. Similar to existing options, it monitors glucose levels every five minutes. Unlike others on the market, it dispenses appropriate insulin microdoses when needed. The device was approved by the FDA in May and recently gained Medicare and Medicaid approval. Uh, The next item is from the world of food and drink. Headline, Crunchy Convenience, Kraft Heinz 360 Crisp. Microwaved food is convenient but not as satisfying as fresh-cooked fare. Kraft Heinz has a solution, the 360 crisp process, 
which debuted with a new product, Lunchables Grilled Cheesies. The sandwich comes in a paperboard container with a susceptor that, when microwaved, directs heat to all the right places, leaving no bite undercooked or singed. You have that perfectly crispy outside, that gooey melty inside, and none of that sogginess or dryness, says Alan Kleinerman, Vice President of Disruption. The next item is accessibility. Smoother Moves. The name is Zine. Each year, tens of thousands of people in the United States go to the emergency room after falling using walkers and canes. The Zine was designed to be a safer walker using a gas spring technology that inventor Garrett Brown developed when creating the Steadicam movie camera stabilizer in the 1970s. It allows users to smoothly move the chair up and down so they can more easily shift between walking, standing, and sitting modes. There was something missing between walkers and wheelchairs, says Brown, co-founder and CEO of Zine Maker Echo Kinetics. He believes the Zine fills that voice, and that is spelled Z-E-E-N. The next invention is for the world of parenting. Headline, Breakthrough Bassinet. Happiest Baby Snoo Smart Sleeper. Babies are used to sleeping with a rhythm in utero, says inventor Dr. Harvey Karp, co-founder and CEO of Happiest Baby, maker of the Snoo. Why should we rip that away the instant they're born? The popular bassinet lulls infants with automated rocky and rocking and shushing. It also secures them on their backs, reducing the threat of sudden infant death syndrome, which is why, in March, the FDA granted de novo approval to the snoo, making it the first medical device to be approved for infant sleep. Happiest Baby hopes insurance coverage for the $1,700 snoop comes next. The next item again is from Parenting. Kids Best Friend. The name of the item? Wowie Doggy. For a pet without the expense or time commitment, the new Wowie Doggy is a remarkably smart and customizable robot canine. Each bot has unique features, such as eye color and shape, and even personality traits and preferences. And the app-compatible pet responds to your interactions and remembers them, building memories and learning new tricks, all without the need for early morning walks. Still, prepare to become attached. You love your actual dog for its unique quirky personality, says Andrew Yanofsky, Vice President of Marketing and Operations at Huawei. And our dogs are one in a million. The next item is Listen Up. It's from the world of AI. Project Gutenberg Open Audiobook Collection. Project Gutenberg is the oldest digital library 
started in 1971 to make ebooks more accessible. But CEO Greg Newby says it isn't great at either creating or distributing. So Microsoft and MIT teamed up to make the Open Audiobook Collection using text-to-speech tech to turn 5,000 books into free, synthetically narrated audiobooks, now available on Spotify. The software fueling the project was also released at no charge. And that's it for our coverage of the November 6th issue of Time. We move now to the November 20th issue of Time magazine. We begin with the brief. And in that section, we will start with the headline, Inside Gaza's Hospital, by Sanya Mansour. Within minutes of the October 31st Israeli attack on the Jabala refugee camp in, in Gaza, the victims began flooding the Indonesian hospital a mile away. Dr. Marwan Sultan, the hospital's medical director, says that most of the injured and dead were women and children. Some had deep burns, serious injuries, or even missing limbs, Sultan told Time magazine four hours after the attack. There are only 16 intensive care beds in the hospital, which was running dangerously low on fuel, threatening the lives of his patients. If the electricity goes, says Sultan, they will die. The conditions for medical care in Gaza are deteriorating across the besieged 140-square-mile coastal strip. Surgeons are operating by flashlight and rationing water, anesthesia, and the generator fuel needed to perform surgeries, perform ele provide electricity for incubators, and care for kidney dialysis patients. Doctors and health organizations tell time. The roughly two dozen hospitals still operating in Gaza are absorbing the patients of the 12 that have closed because of a lack of supplies and the ongoing bombing, says the World Health Organization. Medical teams are on their knees, says Hisham Mahana, a spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Gaza. All war zones are awful, but Gaza presents a unique hell. Much of the enclave of two million is now a battlefield, with civilians and combatants intermixed, and homes and businesses sitting side by side with military infrastructure. Nowhere is that reality felt more keenly than at the territory's hospitals, which have simultaneously become safe havens and potential targets, and where the impact of Israel's offensive is measured every day in lives. More than 9,000 killed as of November 2nd, including 135 medical personnel, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. After the October 7th Hamas attacks that killed more than 1,400 people in Israel and started the war, the Israeli military began a massive bombing campaign. On October 13th, it ordered civilians to depart the northern part of the Strip for the south. And, on October 27th, it sent in ground troops and armored vehicles. Hamas has fought back above and below ground from a network of concrete tunnels extending hundreds of miles. 
for the estimated one million people displaced by fighting. The search for shelter has brought many to makeshift tent cities. More than 50,000 are packed into the Al-Shifa hospital complex in northern Gaza, says Dr. Gashan Abu Sita, a surgeon. Mattresses line the floor, kids run around, and a stench hangs in the air. So many people in such a small space with inadequate access to hygiene and sanitation will lead to an outbreak of infectious diseases, Abu Sita worries. Hospitals are struggling to dispose of dead bodies, which pose their own health hazards. Abu Sita has been going to a corner store to buy bottles of vinegar and laundry detergent to clean wounds. Every day you make more and more compromises, he says. Some two dozen hospitals have been asked to evacuate to the south, according to the World Health Organization, which says doing so would risk patients' health lives. When Israeli government officials called Al-Awadak Hospital and told its manager, Dr. Ahmed Mahana, to evacuate staff and patients, I refused, of course, he says. Where else can I deal with my patients? Doctors worry that their facilities will be hit in the bombardment. On October 30th, an Israeli airstrike damaged part of Gaza's only cancer hospital, the Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital, says its director, Dr. Sobe Sheik. My message is, please don't kill cancer patients, Sheik says. On November 1st, the World Health Organization said that the hospital had shut down. Days before that, the Israel Defense Forces presented evidence it said showed Hamas had established a command center in and beneath Al-Shifa Hospital. A Hamas official denied the allegation. Targeting a hospital would be a war crime, whether or not Hamas is using it to hide in, says Susan Akram, a law professor who directs Boston University's International Human Rights Clinic. Israel has an obligation to protect the entire population in Gaza, she says. For its part, Israel notes that using a hospital to hide military equipment or facilities is itself a war crime. Even without a direct attack, the hospitals lack key supplies, which are coming in at a painfully slow pace amid the Israeli siege. On October 31st, the U.S. said that 66 trucks of humanitarian aid were entering Gaza daily, a fraction of the hundreds per day before the war. Fuel remains a critical issue. The Israeli military reportedly believes Hamas holds more than 500,000 liters that it could provide to hospitals. The United States said it is pressuring Israel to break its blockade and allow aid in. President Biden called November 1st for a humanitarian pause in the war, but faces criticism for providing military aid to Israel. Everyone in Gaza has been affected. We often focus on the victims of airstrikes, says Dr. Brenda Kelly, a consultant obstetrician in Oxford, the United Kingdom, but ordinary lives don't stop. Women still go into labor. 
they still have miscarriages, ectopic pregnancies, and preterm births. Dr. Hatem Edher, the head of the neonatal intensive care unit at Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunus, fears that electricity shutting off will mean the deaths of five babies in his care who are dependent on ventilators. If there is no electricity, he says, it means the end of their life. Al Auda Hospital's Mahana, speaking by phone on October 23rd in southern Gaza, seemed unfazed by the sound of a blast during the interview. We are afraid. We are human beings, Mihana says. But we cannot do anything except continue our mission with our patients. The next article will be page 18 of the brief, The World of Health. Five Ways to Cultivate Hope When You Don't Have Any by Angela Haupt There's a sense, once a whisper, that's growing louder every day. Glaciers are melting. Children are being slaughtered. Hatred runs rampant. Sometimes it feels like the world is approaching a nadir, or like you are. The antidote to any despair might be hope, experts say. It's one of the most powerful and essential human mindsets and possible to achieve even when it feels out of reach. Hope is a way of thinking, says John Hellman, founding director of the Hope Research Center at the University of Oklahoma. We know it can be taught. We know it can be nurtured. It's not something you either have or don't have. Many people, he notes, don't fully understand what hope is and what hope isn't. Being hopeful does not mean engaging in wishful thinking or blind optimism. Rather, hope is the belief or the expectation that the future can be better and that, more importantly, we have the capacity to pursue that future, Hellman says. The opposite of hope, therefore, is not pessimism. The opposite of hope is rather apathy, with its loss of motivation. And while wishing is passive, hope is about taking action. Being hopeful is associated with an array of benefits. Our capacity for hope is one of the strongest predictors of well-being, Hellman says. Research suggests, for example, that people with more hope throughout their lives have fewer chronic health problems, are less likely to be depressed or anxious, have stronger social support, and tend to live longer. We asked Hellman and other experts for strategies that can help cultivate hope, even when it feels unattainable. And they came up with five or six, no, five ways. Number one, give yourself permission to be hopeful. Remember when you were a kid and well-intentioned adults cautioned you to not get your hopes up? That mentality can linger, notes David Feldman, a professor of counseling psychology at Santa Clara University in California. The truth is, 
whether or not we allow ourselves to hope, at some point we're going to be disappointed, he says. I don't think the solution, therefore, is never allowing ourselves to feel hopeful or giving up on hope altogether. So go ahead and grant yourself permission to look forward to the future with excitement and ambition. Number two, set at least one meaningful goal. In the mid-1980s, the psychologist Charles Snyder set out to determine what qualities hopeful people had in common. He landed on three key factors that researchers still rely on today. First, in order to be hopeful, people must think in a goal-oriented way. Make it a point to always be working toward at least one goal that is intrinsically meaningful, Feldman advises. In other words, it shouldn't be something you have to do, like crossing off your work to-do list, but something you want to do. Number three, brainstorm solutions. Another key element of Snyder's hope theory is what researchers describe as pathways, or having the perception that there are plans or ways of getting you from where you are to your goals. If you set a goal that's meaningful to you, but you can't figure out a way to achieve it, you'll probably feel pretty hopeless, Feldman notes. People who are high in hope, meanwhile, tend to generate lots of pathways. So if one doesn't work out, they have an alternative at the ready. If you're struggling to make a plan, or you keep being blocked, he suggests sitting down with a pen and paper and giving yourself an hour to brainstorm possible solutions. Number four, call your support team. According to Snyder's research, people who are hopeful tend to have a lot of agency, which in this context means the motivation to actually achieve their goals. One of the best ways to enhance it is through other people. When Feldman is feeling low, he calls his father, who is his biggest cheerleader. Having someone you care about tell you they believe in you can give you a kick in the behind, he says. Make a list of your biggest supporters, so when you're feeling unmotivated, you know exactly whom to call for a boost. And number five, tap into your imagination. Hellman thinks of imagination as the instrument of hope. Let's say you set a goal for the week, like applying for five different jobs, helping your kid adjust to preschool, or volunteering for two hours. Spend a few minutes reflecting on or talking about what would happen if you achieved it. How does it impact you? Or how would it benefit others? And who are those other people, he says. You and I have this wonderful capacity to play a movie in our head. And when you can see yourself in the future, that is the very essence of hope. Moving on now also in the November 20th issue, we move on to the section titled The View. 
The first article is from the world of politics. Headline, The End of Reagan's GOP. This is written by Matthew Continetti, who is Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. MAGA is ascendant, crowd Representative Matt Getz on October 25th. He also had reason to be happy in extent of just crowing about it. After weeks of chaos, House Republicans had settled on Mike Johnson as Speaker. Johnson is thoroughly in line with nationalist populist Republicans who engineered Kevin McCarthy's fall. And the episode was another sign that the GOP is no longer Ronald Reagan's party. It is now Donald Trump's party. Since Reagan left office nearly 35 years ago, the GOP has defined itself negatively. The coalition comes together based not only on an affirmative program, but in protest over someone else's. The party's greatest moments have been acts of rebuke. First came the election of 1994. Republicans won control of Congress for the first time in 40 years in a rejection of Bill Clinton's health care plan, tax hikes, and liberal social views. George W. Bush ran in 2000 to restore integrity to the White House, a subtle dig at the character of his otherwise popular predecessor. Things became more difficult for Republicans as affluent voters and voters with advanced degrees, along with millennial and eventually Gen Z voters, turned away from social conservatism. The failures of the Bush administration didn't help. Nor did the lackluster presidential campaigns of John McCain and Mitt Romney. The election of Barack Obama inadvertently reassembled the Reagan coalition of white, college-educated, married couples in the suburb. These upwardly mobile professionals, many of whom were religiously observant, combined with traditional GOP constituencies in the Great Plains, evangelical Protestant communities in the South, and white non-college voters in the Rust Belt. In 2010, in 2014, these voters helped Republican candidates defy Obama. By the time he departed the White House, Republicans held the House, the Senate, most governors' mansions, and two-thirds of state legislative chambers. This was not because voters loved the GOP. It was because voters saw the GOP as the way to block Democratic overreach. Obama was a gift to the Republican Party, a limitless source of conservative outrage. Obama believed that the right mix of progressive policies would win back voters. My hope is that if the American people send a message to Republicans, Obama told Rolling Stone in 2012, and they suffer some losses in this next election, that there's going to be some self-reflection going on, that it might break the fever. The message was never sent. Populist resistance intensified. It assumed 
the form of Trump. Reagan led a party of insiders, aspirational leaders invested in America's institutions. Trump, by contrast, is the outsider-in-chief. His coalition also looks different from Reagan's. As the electorate became more educated, politics became a struggle over cultural values. And as those values swung left on immigration, race, climate, sex, and gender, and national pride, America has become divided by geography and education. In 2016, Hillary Clinton became the first Democrat to win white voters with a college education or higher since 1956. Joe Biden won them in 2020. Republican pollster Bill McInturf says that in 2012, the GOP was split. 48% of Republicans did not have college degrees. By 2022, the share of Republicans without degrees had grown to 62%. The share of Republicans with a bachelor's degree fell to 25%. Trump's GOP is down market, confrontational, politically incorrect, suspicious of institutional authority, and uninterested in following rules set by any liberals. Senator Romney's retirement announcement was tacit recognition that the Republican Party that ran him for president 10 years ago no longer exists. The party that nominated Reagan 40 years ago is also gone as well. Perhaps that is how it should be. Parties and movements change. Reagan was more of a social conservative than conservative icon Barry Goldwater, who was more of a foreign policy hawk than previous GOP leaders. The issue set of the Trump era, migration, the rise of China and Silicon Valley, the whopping returns to participation in the information economy, conservative control of the Supreme Court, is now a far cry from what Reagan faced. Republicans and conservatives must cope with the social and economic conditions of our time. They must strengthen the best aspects of our society and culture while ameliorating the worst. That could mean adopting new attitudes toward the global economy and cultural institutions, while unraveling the unaccountable bureaucratic structure of the administrative state. What it cannot mean, what it can never mean, is abandoning the American tradition of liberty under law in order to satisfy the ego of one single man. The next article is The Risk Report by Ian Bremmer. Headline, The Gaza Invasion Will Not Make Israel Safer. There are many reasons why Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ordered a ground invasion of Gaza. He wants to ensure that Hamas can never again murder 1,400 Israelis. 
He needs to take bold action to restore the confidence of his people in their nation's security. He may also believe his political survival depends on erasing the shame his government faces following the most consequential security failure in Israel's 75-year history. But none of that makes a ground invasion of Gaza the right thing to do. There are more than two million Palestinians now trapped inside a war zone with nowhere to go. Yes, Israeli forces will take steps to minimize civilian casualties. But because it is one of the world's most densely populated areas, those precautions can't be nearly enough. Beyond the moral problem, Netanyahu should understand that an Israeli invasion of Gaza will not make Israel safer. Inside Gaza, with Hamas dug in, even as Israeli victory would prove very costly in Israeli lives also. Israel is much more likely to be sucked into a long and brutal war than to score the hoped-for decapitation of Hamas anytime soon. It also now appears inevitable that the large-scale killing of Palestinian civilians will force a regional escalation of the war and could raise the risk of terrorism against Jewish targets around the world. Violence is already rising in the West Bank, which may force Israel's security forces to split their, their focus even further. That doesn't mean Hezbollah and Lebanon, much less Iran, will fully enter a war with Israel. But we're already seeing rocket attacks from Hezbollah and other Iranian-funded proxy groups, including Houthis in Yemen and provocative acts from militias in Iraq and Syria. Finally, even if Israel could somehow subdue Palestinian resistance in Gaza, controlling security in that territory will prove harder over the long run. The war is radicalizing far more Palestinians than Hamas propaganda ever could. Egypt and the wealthy Gulf Arab states, whatever their past failures to help Palestinians, have no intention of helping Netanyahu solve this problem. The Biden administration wants to support Israel in its hour of need, but has warned Netanyahu that Americans understand all too well the cost of responding to a massive terrorist attack with a plan that has no credible ultimate objective. No one can fault any Israeli for wanting to scotch the terrorist organization that killed 1,400 of its men, women, and children. But Israel will not be made safer by a full invasion of Gaza and a plan that can only kill more innocent people. The next item is the DC Brief by Philip Elliott, the Washington Correspondent. It took him a beat longer than a lot of folks, but former Vice President Mike Pence got there eventually, and maybe significantly, early enough to force his fellow Republicans to take a clear-eyed look at their party and its trajectory.
It's become clear to me, this is not my time, Pence told donors in Las Vegas on October 28th. Pence suspended his money-challenged presidential campaign and took a not-so-veiled swipe at his former boss, President Donald Trump. I urge all my fellow Republicans here, give our country a Republican standard-bearer that will, as Lincoln said, appeal to the better angels of our nature. He then added that the nominee should be someone who can lead the country with civility. Pence became the first major candidate to exit the GOP chase of the deeply uncivil Trump. Pressure is growing for others to follow suit before it becomes too late to deny Trump a third nomination. Yet it may already be too late to stop Trump. He is faring better today than even when he was on the cusp of the nomination in 2016, when the highest he ever got was 49% support in the final CNN poll released the first week of May 2016. Today, the former president has been consistently parked north of 50% since April. Even if everyone not named Trump joined forces, they still could not overtake him right now. The fact that Pence, a 12-year veteran of the House, a one-term governor of Indiana, and Trump's vice president could not even get to the starting line should be a warning for the Republicans. It turns out those credentials are no longer required in a Republican that may end up celebrating a soon-to-be felon at its nominating convention next summer or beyond. The next item is titled Health Matters by Haley Weiss, who is the science and health reporter. It's rare to hear of an Alzheimer's diagnosis being a total shock. By the time the presence of the disease is confirmed in an older adult, it's easy to look back and see initial signs of mental decline, a forgotten Thanksgiving recipe, a story from early childhood told one too many times, an extra confusing grocery bill. This slight change in functioning that's just outside the realm of normal, even for an older person, is referred to as mild cognitive impairment. It's a precursor to a number of conditions that cause dementia. And early detection is critical for the effectiveness of atuganumab, the first ever Alzheimer's medication. With the arrival of treatment, doctors are being forced to reckon with how infrequently mild cognitive impairment is diagnosed. Recently, a research team at the University of Southern California has suggested that of more than 7 million cases of mild cognitive impairment nationwide, only around 10% are ever caught. I talked to Soren Matke, one of the lead authors of the study, and he made the following observations. One, neurological decline can be a major source of shame for older adults who may go out of their way to compensate for symptoms in order to avoid detection. Second, 
While there are tests for mild cognitive impairment, the shortest takes 15 minutes, which is longer than many physicians have time for during standard checkups. Third, improved detection is particularly important in socioeconomically disadvantaged groups, where risk factors like high blood pressure and cholesterol, both associated with dementia as well as cardiovascular events, are higher. Fourth, nobody knows more about what's going on with older adults than their loved ones. Who should press doctors for evaluations if they feel it's warranted? Matkey says he hopes to do additional research that would allow him to put together risk scoring algorithms that physicians could use to identify people for testing. Brain cells do not grow back, he says. If you feel like you or a loved one might be showing signs of mild cognitive impairment, don't let a physician brush it off. We move on now to the next article titled Crossroads. This is a special report. Zelensky leaves a contentious meeting with U.S. Senators in the Capitol on September 24th is the caption of the picture. Amid corruption allegations, wavering allies, and a new war in the Middle East, Zelensky struggles to keep Ukraine in the fight. This is by Simon Schuster in Kiev. Vladimir Zelensky was running late. The invitation to his speech at the National Archives in Washington had gone out to several hundred guests, including congressional leaders and top officials from the Biden administration. Billed as the main event of his visit in late September, it would give him a chance to inspire U.S. support against Russia, with the kind of oratory the world has come to expect from Ukraine's wartime president. Unfortunately, it did not go as planned. That afternoon, Zelensky's meetings at the White House and the Pentagon delayed him by more than an hour. And when he finally arrived to begin his speech at 6.41 p.m., he looked distant and agitated. He relied on his wife, First Lady Olena Zelenska, to carry his message of resilience on the stage beside him, while his own delivery felt stilted, as though he wanted to get it over with. At one point, while handing out medals after the speech, he urged the organizer to hurry things along. The reason, he later said, was the complete exhaustion he felt that night, not only from the demands of leadership during the war, but also the persistent need to convince his allies that with their help, Ukraine can win. Nobody believes in our victory like I do. Nobody, Zelensky told Time magazine in an interview after his trip. Instilling that belief in his allies, he said, takes all your power, all your energy. You understand? It takes so much of everything. And it's only getting harder. Twenty months into the war, about a fifth of Ukraine's territory remains under Russian occupation. Tens of thousands of soldiers and civilians have been killed. And Zelensky can feel during his travels that global interest in the war has slackened. So has the level of international support.
The scariest thing is that part of the world got used to the war in Ukraine, he says. Exhaustion with the war rolls along like a wave. You see it in the United States. You see it in Europe. And we see that as soon as they start getting a little tired, it becomes more like a show to them. I can't watch this rerun for the tenth time. Public support for aid to Ukraine has been in decline for months in the United States, and Zelensky's visit did nothing to revive it. Some 41% of Americans want Congress to provide more weapons to Kiev, down from 65% in June, when Ukraine began a major counteroffensive, according to a Reuters survey taken shortly after Zelensky's departure. That offensive has proceeded at an excruciating pace with enormous losses, making it ever more difficult for Zelensky to convince partners that victory is just around the corner. With the outbreak of war in Israel, even keeping the world's attention on Ukraine has become a major challenge. After his visit to Washington, Time magazine followed the president and his team back to Kiev, hoping to understand how they would react to the signals they had received, especially the insistent calls for Zelensky to fight corruption inside his own government and the fading enthusiasm for a war with no end in sight. On my first day in Kiev, I asked one member of his circle how the president was feeling. The response came without a second's hesitation. Angry. The usual sparkle of his optimism, his sense of humor, his tendency to liven up a meeting in the war room with a bit of banter or a bawdy joke, none of that has survived into the second year of all-out war. Now he walks in, gets the updates, gives the orders, and walks out says one longtime member of his team. Another tells me that most of all, Zelensky feels betrayed by his Western allies. They have left him without the means to win the war, only the means to survive it. But his convictions haven't changed. Despite the recent setbacks on the battlefield, he does not intend to give up fighting or to sue for any kind of peace. On the contrary, his belief in Ukraine's ultimate victory over Russia has hardened into a form that worries some of his advisors. It is immovable, verging on the messianic. He deludes himself, one of his closest aides, tell me in frustration, we are out of options. We are not winning. But try telling him that. Zelensky's stubbornness some of his aides say, has hurt their team's efforts to come up with a new strategy, a new message. As they have debated the future of the war, one issue has remained taboo, the possibility of negotiating a peace deal with the Russians. Judging by recent surveys, most Ukrainians would reject such a move, especially if it entailed the loss of any occupied territory. Zelensky remains dead set against even a temporary truce. For us, it would mean leaving this wound open for future generations, the president tells me, 
Maybe it will calm some people down inside our country and outside, at least those who want to wrap things up at any price. But for me, that's a problem because we are left with this explosive force. We can only delay its detonation. For now, he is intent on winning the war on Ukrainian terms, and he is shifting tactics to achieve that. Aware that the flow of Western arms could dry up over time, the Ukrainians have ramped up production of drones and missiles, which they have used to attack Russian supply routes, command centers, and ammunition depots far behind enemy lines. The Russians have responded with more bombing raids against civilians, more missile strikes against the infrastructure that Ukraine will need to heat homes and keep the lights on through the winter. Zelensky describes it as a war of wills, and he fears that if the Russians are not stopped in Ukraine, the fighting will spread beyond its borders. I have long lived with this fear, he says. A third world war could start in Ukraine, continue in Israel, and move on from there to Asia, and then explode somewhere else. That was his message in Washington. Help Ukraine stop the war before it spreads and before it's too late. He worries that his audience has stopped paying attention. At the end of last year, during his previous visit to Washington, Volensky received a hero's welcome. The White House sent a U.S. Air Force jet to pick him up in eastern Poland a few days before Christmas, and with an escort from a NATO spy plane and an F-15 Eagle fighter, deliver him to Joint Base Andrews outside the United States Capitol. That evening, Zelensky appeared before a joint session of Congress to declare that Ukraine had defeated Russia in the battle for minds of the world. Watching his speech from the balcony, I counted 13 standing ovations before I stopped keeping track. One senator told me he could not remember a time in his three decades on Capitol Hill where a foreign leader received such an admiring reception. A few right-wing Republicans refused to stand or even applaud for Zelensky, but the votes to support him were bipartisan and overwhelming throughout last year. This time around, the atmosphere has changed. Assistance to Ukraine had become a sticking point in the debate over the federal budget. One of Zelensky's foreign policy advisors urged him to call off the trip in September, warning that the atmosphere was too fraught. Congressional leaders declined to let Zelensky deliver a public address on Capitol Hill. His aides tried to arrange an in-person appearance for him on Fox News and an interview with Oprah Winfrey. Neither one came through. Instead, on the morning of September 21st, Zelensky met in private with then House Speaker Kevin McCarthy before making his way to the old Senate chamber where lawmakers grilled him behind closed doors. Most of Zelensky's usual critics stayed silent in the session. Senator Ted Cruz strolled in more than 20 minutes late. The Democrats, for their part, wanted to understand where the war was headed and how badly Ukraine needed U.S. support. 
They asked me straight up, if we don't give you the aid, what happens? Zelensky recalls, what happens is we will lose. Zelensky's performance left a deep impression on some of the lawmakers present. Angus King, an independent senator from Maine, recalled the Ukrainian leader telling his audience, you're giving money. We are giving our lives. But it was not enough. Ten days later, Congress passed a bill temporarily avert a government shutdown. It included no assistance for Ukraine. By the time Zelensky returned to Kiev, the cold of early fall had taken hold, and his aides rushed to prepare for the second winter of the invasion. Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure have damaged power stations and parts of the electricity grid, leaving its potentially unable to meet spikes in demand when the temperature drops. Three of the senior officials in charge of dealing with this problem told me that blackouts would likely be more severe this winter, and the public reaction in Ukraine would not be as forgiving. Last year, people blamed the Russians, one of them says. This time, they'll blame us for not doing enough to prepare. The cold will also make military advances more difficult, locking down the front lines at least until the spring. But Zelensky has refused to accept that. Freezing the war to me means losing it, he says. Before the winter sets in, his aides warned me to expect major changes in their military strategy and a major shakeup in the president's team. At least one minister would need to be fired, along with a senior general in charge of the counteroffensive, they said to ensure accountability for Ukraine's slow progress at the front. We are not moving forward, says one of Zelensky's close aides. Some frontline commanders, he continues, have begun refusing orders to advance, even when they came directly from the office of the president. They just want to sit in the trenches and hold the line, he says. But we can't win a war that way. When I raised these claims with a senior military officer, he said that some commanders have little choice in second-guessing orders from the top. At one point in early October, he said, the political leadership in Kiev demanded an operation to retake the city of Horovitka, a strategic outpost in eastern Ukraine that the Russians have held and fiercely defended for nearly a decade. The answer came back in the form of a question. With what? They don't have the men and the weapons, says the officer. Where are the weapons? Where is the artillery? Where are the new recruits? In some branches of the military, the shortage of personnel has become even more dire than the deficit in arms and ammunition. One of Zelensky's close aides told me that even if the U.S. and its allies come through with all the weapons they have pledged, we don't have the men to use them. Since the start of the invasion, Ukraine has refused to release official counts of the dead and wounded. But according to U.S. and European estimates, the toll has long surpassed 100,000 on each side of the war.
It has eroded the ranks of Ukraine's armed forces so badly that draft offices have been forced to call up ever older personnel, raising the average age of a soldier in Ukraine to around 43. They're grown men now, and they aren't that healthy to begin with, says the close aide to Zelensky. This is Ukraine, not Scandinavia. The picture looked different at the outset of the invasion. One branch of the military, known as the Territorial Defense Forces, reported accepting 100,000 new recruits in the first 10 days of all-out war. This mass mobilization was fueled in part by the optimistic predictions of some senior officials that the war would be won in months, if not weeks. Maybe people thought they could sign up for a quick tour and take part in a heroic victory, says the second member of the president's team. Now, recruitment is way down. As construction efforts have intensified around the country, stories are spreading on social media of draft officers pulling men off trains and buses and sending them to the front. Those with means sometimes bribe their way out of service, often by paying for a medical exemption. Such episodes of corruption within the recruitment system became so widespread by the end of the summer that on August 11th, Zelensky fired the heads of the draft offices in every region of the country. The decision was intended to signal his commitment to fighting graft, but the move backfired according to the senior military officer, as recruitment nearly ground to a halt without leadership. The fired officials also proved difficult to replace, in part because the reputation of the draft offices had been tainted. Who wants that job, the officer asks. It's like putting a sign on your back that says, corrupt. In recent months, the issue of corruption has strained Jelensky's relationship with many of his allies. Ahead of his visit to Washington, the White House prepared a list of anti-corruption reforms for the Ukrainians to undertake. One of the aides who traveled with Zelensky to the U.S. told me these proposals targeted the very top of the state hierarchy. These were not suggestions, says another presidential advisor. These were conditions. To address the American consensus concerns, Zelensky took some dramatic steps. In early September, he fired his Minister of Defense, Oleski Reznikov, a member of his inner circle who had come under scrutiny over corruption in his ministry. Two presidential advisors told me he had not been personally involved in graft but he failed to keep order within his ministry, one says, pointing to the inflated prices the ministry paid for supplies, such as winter coats for soldiers and eggs to keep them fed. As news of these scandals spread, the president gave strict orders for his staff to avoid the slightest perception of self-enrichment. Don't buy anything. Don't take any vacations. Just sit at your desk, be quiet, and work, one staffer says in characterizing these directions.
Some mid-level officials in the administration complained to me of bureaucratic paralysis and low morale as the scrutiny of their work intensified. The typical salary in the president's office, they said, comes to about $1,000 per month, or around $1,500 for more senior officials, far less than they could make in the private sector. We sleep in rooms that are two by three meters, about the size of a prison cell, says Andre Yermak, the presidential chief of staff, referring to the bunker that Zelensky and a few of his confidants have called home since the start of the invasion. We're not out here living the high life, but he tells me in his office, all day, every day, we are busy fighting this war. Amid all the pressure to root out corruption, I assumed, perhaps naively, that officials in Ukraine would think twice before taking a bribe or pocketing state funds. But when I made this point to a top presidential advisor in early October, he asked me to turn off my audio recorder so he could speak more freely. Simon, you're mistaken, he says. People are stealing like there's no tomorrow. Even the firing of the defense minister did not make officials feel any better, he adds, because the purge took too long to materialize. The president was warned in February that corruption had grown rife inside the ministry, but he dithered for more than six months, giving his allies multiple chances to deal with the problems quietly or explain them away. By the time he acted ahead of his United States visit, it was too late says another senior presidential advisor. Ukraine's Western allies were already aware of the scandal by then. Soldiers at the front had begun making off-color jokes about Reznikov's eggs, a new metaphor for corruption. The reputational damage was done, said the advisor. When I asked Zelensky about the problem, he acknowledged its gravity and the threat it poses to Ukraine's morale and its relationships with foreign partners. Fighting corruption, he assured me, is among his top priorities. He also suggested that some foreign allies have an incentive to exaggerate the problem because it gives them an excuse to cut off financial support. It's not right, he says, for them to cover up their failure to help Ukraine by tossing out those accusations. But some of the accusations have been hard to deny. In August, a Ukrainian news outlet known for investigating graft, Bihus Info, published a damning report about Zelensky's top advisor on economic and energy policy, Rostislav Sherma. The report revealed that Sherma, a former executive in the energy industry, has a brother who co-owns two solar energy companies with power plants in southern Ukraine. Even after the Russians occupied that part of the country, cutting it off from the Ukrainian power grid, the companies continued to receive state payments for producing electricity. The anti-corruption police, an independent agency known in Ukraine as NABU, responded to the publication by opening an embezzlement probe into Sherma and his brother. But Zelensky did not suspend his advisor. Instead, in late September, Sherma joined the president's delegation to Washington, where I saw him glad-handing senior lawmakers and officials from the Biden administration. 
Soon after he returned to Kiev, I visited Sherman in his office on the second floor of the presidential headquarters. The atmosphere inside the compound had changed in the 11 months since my last visit. Sandbags had been removed from many windows, as new air defense systems had arrived in Kiev, including U.S. Patriot missiles, which reduced the risk of a rocket attack on Zelensky's office. The hallways remained dark, but soldiers no longer patrolled them with assault rifles, and their sleeping mats and other gear had been cleared away. Some of the president's aide, including Sherma, had gone back to wearing civilian clothes instead of military uniforms. When we sat down inside his office, Sherma told me the allegations against him were part of a political attack paid for by one of Zelensky's domestic enemies. A piece of bad stuff was thrown, he says, brushing the front of his sweater. And now we have to explain that we are clean. It did not seem to trouble him that his brother is a major player in the industry that Sherma oversees. On the contrary, he spent nearly half an hour trying to convince me of the gold rush that renewable energy would see after the war. Perhaps, I suggested, amid all the concerns about corruption in Ukraine, it would have been wiser for Sherma to step aside while under investigation for embezzlement, or at least sit out Zelensky's trip to Washington. He responded with a shrug. If we do that, tomorrow everybody on the team would be targeted, he said. Politics is back, and that's the problem. A few minutes later, Sherma's phone lit up with an urgent message that forced him to cut our interview short. The president had called his, office, his senior aides into a meeting into his office. It was normal on Monday mornings for their team to hold a strategy session to plan out the week. But this one would be different. Over the weekend, Palestinian terrorists had massacred many hundreds of civilians in southern Israel, prompting the Israeli government to impose a blockade of the Gaza Strip and declare war against Hamas. Huddled around a conference table, Zelensky and his aides tried to understand what the tragedy would mean for them. My mind is racing, one of them told me when he emerged from the meeting that afternoon. Things are about to start moving very fast. From the earliest days of the Russian invasion, Zelensky's top priority and perhaps his main contribution to the nation's defense had been to keep attention on Ukraine and to rally the democratic world to its cause. Both tasks would become a lot harder with the outbreak of war in Israel. The focus of Ukraine's allies in the U.S. and Europe and of the global media quickly shifted to the Gaza Strip. It's logical, Zelensky tells me. Of course we lose out from the events in the Middle East. People are dying, and the world's help is needed there to save lives, to save humanity, Zelensky wanted to help. After the crisis meeting with AIDS, he asked the Israeli government for permission to visit their country in a show of solidarity. The answer appeared the following week in Israeli media reports. The time is not right. A few days later, President Biden tried to break through the impasse Zelensky had seen on Capitol Hill. Instead of asking Congress to vote on another standalone package of Ukraine aid, Biden bundled it with other priorities, including support for Israel and U.S.-Mexico border security. The package would cost $105 billion, with $61 billion of it for Ukraine. It's a smart investment, 
Biden said, that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. But it was also an acknowledgement that on its own, Ukraine aid no longer stands much of a chance in Washington. When I asked Zelensky about this, he admitted that Biden's hands appear to be tied by GOP opposition. The White House, he said, remains committed to helping Ukraine. But arguments about shared values no longer have much sway over American politicians or the people who elect them. Politics is like that, he tells me with a tired smile. They weigh their own interests. At the start of the Russian invasion, Zelensky's mission was to maintain the sympathy of humankind. Now his task is more complicated. In his foreign trips and presidential phone calls, he needs to convince world leaders that helping Ukraine is in their own national interest, that it will, as Biden put it, pay dividends. Achieving that gets harder as global crises multiply. But faced with the alternative of freezing the war or losing it, Zelensky sees no option but to press on through the winter and beyond. I don't think Ukraine can allow itself to get tired of war, he says. Even if someone gets tired on the inside, a lot of us don't admit it. The president least of all. And that concludes our coverage of Time Magazine for this podcast. I need to remind you that you've been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it is my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.